Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, Breaking Down the Walls. The answer is connection. And let's get curious. This is Obstacle Course. Here we go. John, we don't go into the realm of politics for (laughs) one simple reason. We don't want to sound stupid. Yeah, because we don't know much. No, and we like to say that. We and also because politics are a topic, obviously that people can have huge disagreements with. Yeah, we're not a political podcast. No, we're not following any party lines or platforms. We're talking about obstacles and what happens when you're able to overcome them and you lean into them and Mm -hmm. what do you learn. I think people get the premise of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I was just (laughs) going to say, I know, I know, I know what it's about. (laughs) Yeah. But today we uh, we had a an esteemed local politician on. We did from the Green Party. From the Green Party, representing your home Cowichan district, Valley, baby. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I still remember sitting at the TV watching that, see, seeing her her historic win. Uh, nobody believed it would happen, but it did. It, it was it was quite the evening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for people of younger generations, there's there seems to be apprehension about involved in politics learning about politics or even voting <laughs> even voting even yeah. participating in politics and yeah that's one of the questions that we, we kind of finished on and and if if we were able to if politics was just about having this kind of conversation thinking deeply about important topics making change happen that is in benefit of our communities i think there would be a lot more yeah. engagement yeah Special shout out to Maeve McGuire. Yeah. For making this conversation happen. And thank you, Sonia, for she she mentioned she had a fifteen hour day today. Mm-hmm. Um, we have no idea what it takes to be a in that political realm. No. And all we do about politicians is basically sit back and judge them, mm-hmm. I find. Mm-hmm. And getting to know the depth and, and humanity and, and motivation from someone who is really representing their their people their community the best that they can it was um super refreshing and i learned a ton and reinforced the importance of connection and and i feel more connected connected to bc politics and by feeling more connected i want to engage more in it and that's just a uh, evidence of some of the stuff Sonia was talking about it in terms of connection and its power and, and why we need to lean into it. Yeah, man, for sure. And, you know, we talk often about how amazed we are by our guest vulnerability. And, and this was just another case, especially somebody in the position that she's in. Politicians aren't often looked at as being vulnerable and forthcoming and perhaps even truthful about the things they say transparent yeah. transparent um and so having somebody in here who is as genuine as they come and and shared real emotion about the about how her father has helped shape her her life and her career and and her decisions and her curiosity and her intellect and her values and and how all that's now played in into how she she runs her family and and how she um represents her her constituents Oh fuck! I, I knew. Okay, I knew I was gonna screw that up. Constitu- constituents. How, how do you say it? Yeah, constituents. One, constituents. See, this is why I'm not a politician. This is one of the many reasons. But anyways, we're we're amazed by that. We'll probably cut that last part. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> God.
Sonia. We're thrilled to have you on, and we're very appreciative of Maeve for uh, making the introduction. Hi, Maeve. Hi, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's right, guys. Maeve is in studio with us, and she was episode number one. You might remember that. So thank you, Maeve, for driving <laughs> Sonia to the studio and oh, no. sitting in. Oh, oh, oh no. let, let's oh, be clear. No. Oh, okay. Oh, 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 sorry. No. Oh, I already have an obstacle. <laughs> what did I say wrong? Well, you were driving? Is this like a bone of contention <laughs> with you guys? It's not a bone of contention. <laughs> no. Maeve is very happy to let me drive. I'm not a good passenger. No. I am the worst passenger. <laughs> She's a great driver. I'm a t- terrible passenger yeah is it, I, I feel you can you give us any examples <laughs> is it is it uh wanting to be in control so i actually was telling Maeve on the ride in this morning and she was driving because i had to do a live radio interview so i do try to not be driving when i'm doing live radio interviews mm-hmm. um and it was my mom had passed on this wisdom from her father So when she learned to drive, her father said to her, you have to drive as though everybody else on the road is an idiot. Right, yeah, my dad said that too. And and so I've taken that to heart. And so I I literally look at all the other cars as death machines that are out to get me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's... It's an interesting dynamic when when we're on the road and it's like there's there aren't other people around. We we never uh we're not aware of the humanity of the people around us, so we're willing to treat them like idiots or just expect that they're idiots and yeah, it, it makes driving a pr- pretty miserable experience most of the time. Yeah, for sure. But you made it here, which is the important thing. You weren't taken out by one of those death machines. No. And yeah, we're we're excited to have you. So, and for the record, your name is Sonia First and Now, right? That, that Not is... Sonia First and No. Yeah, that's right. So all those stupid First and No jokes probably are. Uh, they annoying. never go away. They never get tired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we got your name. That's the first obstacle. Cool. Perfect. And you're the MLA for Cowichan Valley, and. First, uh, first member of legislator legislature that we've had on. So, and the deputy for the Green Party. Oh, yeah, I, I I don't know what that means, and I look forward to know what knowing what that means. So, it, but it, I saw it on your Twitter, and I just copied that. It's thing. interesting <laughs> because in French, the title for MLA is is député. Oh, that means member of the legislature. Right. And so, sometimes when I've done French interviews, it's been very confusing to see that I'm the deputy leader of the BC Greens. So I'm like the deputy. Right. Deputy. <laughs> right, yeah. That's right, right. <laughs> and, uh, they're very forgiving, the Radio Canada people, when they interview me. They're very happy to have French spoken uh, by politicians. So yeah. particularly out here in the West, uh, I'm always happy to do it. The best uh, scenario of that was actually uh, Adrian Dix, Minister of Health, Norm Letnick, who's the health critic for the BC Liberals, and I are on a committee together, and all three of us speak French. And so maybe one of the first times in the BC legislature, there was a a, a press conference with three MLAs all answering a series of questions in French. Wow. It was the happiest day for the Radio <laughs> Canada guys. So <laughs> would you like to say hi to our French listeners? I know we have some because we have people in France. Yeah. Andrew just discovered this, who are listening to our podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, mais bien sûr, bonjour. Je m'appelle Sonia Fresna. Je suis uh, b- très content d'être ici aujourd'hui. I caught some of that. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> très bon. <laughs> <laughs> is that like, hello, my name is Sonia Fresna? 
And I'm, I'm very happy, happy to be here. To be here. Yeah. That's yeah. It. Wow. We are officially nice. a bilingual podcast, I think. <laughs> we now. are, yeah. Yeah, we should get that, Check. <laughs> some sort of rating on iTunes for that. Yeah. Um, was was French spoken in your household growing up, or was uh, was learning French something that you've taken on? No, I'll, you know what? I, I have a feeling a lot of stories are going to come back to my dad. So, uh, end of grade two, I'd been at McKernan, which was an elementary junior high school in Edmonton. Uh, my brother and sister were in junior high at the time, and they were six and seven years older than me. And uh, my friend Candace had just gotten enrolled in a intensive six-week late immersion for entering French immersion in grade three. Mm. Uh, we were only the third year of French immersion in, in Alberta, thanks to the policies of Trudeau Senior. And uh, Candace told me that she was going to have custards in her lunch. And I was like, I want custards <laughs> in my lunch. Uh-huh. Uh, and my dad saw an opportunity in that to suggest that I hop over and try out this uh, intensive six-week French immersion. Uh, and so I did, and it was tough. I went into grade one already knowing how to read, so I spent most of my time in grade one sitting at the back of the class reading. And then, you know, so I was one of these early overachieving kids and then I get into a intensive program and I I don't know anything I don't know the French and it was really intimidating and kind of challenging for me and then I switched over to the school I ended up which was Richard Secord and and luckily stuck it out and did French immersion up until grade 10. Hmm. So you're a prairie girl. I am a prairie girl. Nice, and I'm a prairie boy. <laughs> however, that's, the, that's, that's awesome. what John took from that story. But, but yeah, that was one of the things. <laughs> There's a however there. Okay, let's hear it. That, um, Maeve and I do that a lot when we text each other. However, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my mom was born in Comox. My grandmother was born on Saturna Island. Oh. My great-grandfather emigrated to Saturna from England in 1890. Oh, wow. And the house that he built in Breezy Bay on Saturna Island is there to this day. You can mm. stay there. It's a B&B. And really? it's full of pictures of my family members, of my great-grandparents and my grandparents. And uh, cool. uh, all of them growing up in this amazing place. And uh, crazily, I met my husband there. Is there a story there? Accident. Well, maybe, but not for today. <laughs> not for today. <laughs> um, and then my father emigrated from Germany as a teenager, and he came to Sydney. Mm. And so they were not prairie. Mum was definitely coast, and uh, and they met, and Dad did his degree at UVic. Uh, and graduated in 1963, the first graduating class from UVic, and mm. wanted to go on to do post, uh, you know, graduate studies. And had to go to U of A to do that. So that's mm. how we got temporarily transplanted to the prairies. Okay, fair enough. And now we're all back. <laughs> now, you mentioned earlier that a lot of this would come back to your dad, and that is one place that we wanted to start. And the trip that you took with him, with him to go back to Germany and the influence that that had on your later life. Do you want to mm-hmm. start by telling us about that story? What why you went there, what you were expecting, and how that experience was. So he had left Germany as a teenager. He was actually born in eastern Germany uh, and uh, 
during he was born in 1939 in October, so uh, quite a time to be born. Mm-hmm. And his older brothers were all conscripted into the German army. They were quite a bit older than him. And it was just him and his little sister at home with uh, their mother. Their father was taken away by the Russians and subsequently died in a Russian POW camp. And his mother, Frida, first now, recognized after the war um, the tightening of the borders between East and West Germany and, and was really smart enough to read the signs and... One day, this is a you know a big story in the family. She packed a picnic basket, left everything in the house, you know, left the breakfast dishes on the table, left the left everything behind, and took her two young children, so my dad Peter and his sister Krista, uh, on a train and went into West Berlin, um, which was at that time it was a crossing. The wall wasn't up yet. But it was, the expectation was, you can go into West Berlin for the day, but you come back home to East Germany. And they went into a refugee camp and were, I think it was about six months, and then were flown out into West Germany and started a new life. And dad went to a school in Lake Constance for a while. And then his brother, who had come out to Sydney, uh, sponsored him. So he took a ship Uh, from Europe to Halifax by himself about 15 years old Hmm. and then the train from Halifax to Vancouver and he said that while he was taking that journey he taught himself as much English as he could by reading the newspaper with a German English dictionary came out to Sydney graduated from high school the pictures of him are he, Mm -hmm. he he and his friends built a car. It was the 50s. They, they, it was these awesome photographs. His best friend, Lynn Christian, uh, who I just saw a couple of weeks ago, lives on Sunshine Coast. They were a match set. They, they had this great friendship. They went to university together. And so he started a whole new life out here. And for me growing up, what he wanted to inculcate more than anything was how how fortunate I was to be Canadian and how precious uh, Canadian society is, democracy uh, and all of these things and and how citizenship was an active part of our lives. So knowing what was going on in the world, participating, uh, being actively involved in, in shaping the world in whatever way we could. And then when I was 10, he was a... He, became a psychology professor at Grant McEwen College at the time, which is now McEwen University in Edmonton. And he didn't, he was a, his focus was on teaching. That was his, his passion and his students just, he was an amazing teacher. Um, so he wasn't one of these, he didn't do a lot of research or writing. He did some articles and, and things like that, but, and he didn't go to a lot of conferences. That wasn't his, his shtick. Uh, but he decides that he wants to go to this conference because it's in Leipzig in East Germany in 1980. And he's so curious to go back and see what is it like behind the Iron Curtain. And this is the height of the Cold War. And he took me along, partly, you know, because we were going to go to Germany and meet the relatives and that kind of, and meet my grandmother for the first time and my uncles. and But also uh, he wanted to have my company in East Germany 
and so when we went across the border, the first thing the border guards did was take away our passports because his passport said that he was born in East Germany. Mm-hmm. And we were assigned a sort of a security or people that followed us everywhere we went. And we, we had to go. We could only stay in a certain hotel. The conference was in a different hotel, but we weren't allowed to stay there. And... Um, we had experiences. I mean, I was only 10. So, you know, it's all uh, one of the most remarkable things is all my memories are in black and white. Hmm. I don't I don't see any color in my memories of East Germany. I see a lot of rubble, you know, buildings that had been destroyed during the war with just walls put up around the sides of them and just left. Hmm. And there was a family that uh, we connected with and there was a dinner one night and I'm playing with the little kids and I, I don't know any German, so I'm just doing my best. Um, and later my dad told me that, you know, the family wanted him to take documents out of the country for them and he refused them, um, not because he didn't want to help them, but, but because it was such an enormous risk to take. I was going to ask, it sounds like it would be risky just inherently just going over there and, and bringing his 10-year-old child. And were, were you aware of that risk? And, and what made it worth it for him? I think we talked about it later, and he did acknowledge that there was a risk. But he thought that, you know, I as a Canadian, Canadian-born citizen, um, you know, I would be protected. Um, but for him... You know, his he was such a curious person and and such a such an intellect and and a desire to really know and understand things. He wanted to see what that world was like. How had it been transformed? What was the reality uh, for for people still living in East Germany? And it, it, he saw it as an opportunity. And from my point of view, you know, it was very formative for me. It really has made me deeply committed to protecting democracy and to participating as a citizen and to recognizing the frailty of these systems that we take for for granted and that things can change much more rapidly than we can imagine and then I've studied history and and so that's reinforced by my own um my own studies and my own work on you know, when societies go through transformation, it can be very rapid and very surprisingly um, deeply transformative in a short period of time. And so it's incumbent on, on all of us to really take a protective stance of, of the things that we recognize as so important for, for our society. Mark Twain said, or he's alleged to have said that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And so that idea of warning signs or, or the protection of democracy that it's not it's not finite it, that there's a possibility of of us losing that if if we're not protecting it how might we be aware of that that it's not just something we can take for granted that it's something that we need to hold on to and we need to take action to maintain um and and what might warning signs be or, or what should we be doing or be aware of to, to ensure that's the case? So just a light question there. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is usually Andrew, about 12 minutes in. He just <laughs> plun- plunges into the deep end. Um, 
we are, there are a lot of warning signs already. And so um, institutions like democracy, like parliamentary institutions that we exist under, exist on a agreed set of principles, right? They exist, there's, there's rules governing the legislature and the parliament, the, the standing orders, right, that we've inherited that from the Westminster parliamentary system. And they can seem frivolous sometimes, right? They can seem kind of outdated and, and strange, um, like that the lieutenant governor comes in and has to nod her head to make laws into actual laws, right? That's, you can watch that. But those rules and those traditions are what we've agreed upon in order to imbue these institutions with the kind of respect that we need to give them. And we need to recognize that the institution and our roles in them need to be somewhat separated from us as individuals, right? So they are a way of diminishing a kind of individualism within the democratic institution. So I'm really speaking specifically to Westminster parliamentary um, here because there's different democracies that approach this differently. Um, when I look at um, the history of Europe, so we have to recognize how, how very short-lived democracy is so far. I mean, it's really only in its second century, right? It's only been around for the most part. I mean, in England, where the where it, the institutions were formed, we would say that's a long, it's, it's grown into democracy. Mm-hmm. But in terms of a wider spread uh, kind of phenomenon, this is a 20th century phenomenon. And so we're only into the beginning of the second century of, of anywhere that has democracy. And um, one of the ways that uh, democracy was undermined in in pre-World War II Germany was for the members of the institution to show complete contempt and disregard for the institution. Right. And so the the parliamentarians would be rude and they would yell and they would walk out and they, you know, they wouldn't abide by those traditions or those rules governing the institution. So when we see um, people who are elected to office uh, showing any kind of contempt for the institution that they've been elected to, this is worrying for me, mm-hmm. right? And I, you know, we look across the border to the United States, and and uh, that's terrifying. I don't pull. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and you know, we look at work by writers like Michael Lewis. Yeah, uh, sure. in terms of the. It's not just the outward contempt for the democratic institutions. It's the internal dismantling of those institutions, the internal dismantling of government. Um, and uh, I'm very excited. Maeve and I are off to see uh, Margaret Atwood on September 27th when oh, she comes. Oh, you guys in. got tickets to that? Oh. I actually, I was out of town. And I insisted that Maeve had to uh, get online immediately and purchase the tickets the moment it opened up. Um, And she did, and I'm so happy. But one of the things I heard Margaret Atwood say recently in an interview was, um, 
when you have people like Steve Bannon saying they want to tear everything down, she says, okay, but tell me what you want to build in its place. Yeah, sure. And she said, if it looks like Gilead, Mm -hmm. I want to know that. Mm -hmm. And so these institutions aren't perfect, but what replaces them if we're not talking about you know, where we want to go if we tear down or show contempt, um, we're putting ourselves into a very dangerous place. And as a historian, uh, I see the the kind of occurrences over history of when there's chaos or a vacuum that does not get filled by, you know, people that really want to find a way to work together. Mm-hmm. Or of the highest morals. No. So I want to go back to something you said um, when you were 10 years old, um, and I love the connection you made between curiosity and intellect. And I believe, I'm going to try and quote like Andrew, I believe it was, was it Einstein who talked about, I'm not that much smarter than anyone else, I'm just more curious. And, and I, think, I think there's a strong connection there. And so that sounds like that's a gift that perhaps your dad has passed on to you, being curious. So I wondered how that... Um, curiosity grew as you grew into adulthood and and where that took you so it's a great question you know I I I remember you know we're close to UVic I'm going there after so I reflect with some nostalgia on my lovely time there but I remember at the beginning you know coming out of high school or going to university and people say well you just don't even know how how little you know and I was always like really I mean (laughs) how much more is there to know right And I think that one of the things that I've come to really deeply understand is that there's just an infinite amount of not knowing, an infinite amount that I don't know. And uh, my curiosity has definitely been on a steady incline um, from my my youth. And... back to the question around democracy. I mean, so much of our discourse, our public discourse and the social media discourse comes from this place of people being like, I know, right? I know right. the truth. I know the answer. I know everything. Mm-hmm. And and they, they assert their position from this place of absolute confidence. And as we've entered the realm of, you know, fake news and... Um, putting science on the same level as as belief systems yeah um we are eroding that capacity to have that shared knowledge that we can agree on right we have moved to a place where there is less and less agreement on those foundational pieces of knowledge and this narrowing of um of some of the the discourse to this place of asserting a kind of confidence and knowing at the same time as as losing those touchstones of of what we can count on and agree on is uh, very worrying for me like i'm finding it uh more and more challenging to know how how do we even engage in this but the curiosity, this is what I think, you know, for me, education is such a, uh absolute essential piece of democracy. You can't, you know, really have a thriving democracy without education as the, the foundation of it. And 
if we can find ways to to dial back that um, that loss of curiosity and and to help all of us recognize that that we we don't know right we mm-hmm. there's a lot we don't know mm-hmm. and if we can if we're always saying i want to know more i want to understand better I, I, I don't understand your perspective or, or there's ways of seeing this that are different from other people. And, and it's not to say that um, we go to a totally relativistic approach to knowledge, but if we can find a way to roll back a little bit from this place of just being the loudest one to assert what you know is how you win. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so. it gets attention too. Oh, and, sure. and maybe it is that part of us that assumes that we don't know when we see someone who's declaring the absolute truth for some reason part of our nature is drawn to them maybe maybe because we're like well we don't know but this person might so and and now it's just it's become the cycle of it's that's what gets the most attention and even our the google world that we live in now we don't really have to know we can just find out information we don't really it it removes the need to think or to to figure things out or to solve the equation ourselves when we can just look up any information at any point it's a great opportunity for education because there's so much information out there and and we can learn about everything but how do we balance that with um with the need to be curious and to to think deeply and have a coherent debate and conversation rather than just a screaming match and and i think for for me at least um we can look across the border and we can see that quite clearly but i haven't seen it as much in canadian politics but i i wonder if it is the fear out there in our country as well uh are you seeing increase of that sort of rhetoric I just heard on CBC a, a top a conversation the other day about the Overton window. So this is this idea come out of this. Uh, it came out of a think tank in the U.S. by a guy named Overton, <laughs> and he had this theory that we have sort of a window of what is politically palatable topics or palatable ways in the wider public to talk about things. So things that um, you know we are in an era of truth and reconciliation in Canada. So that has come into our Overton window, right? Where when we were all growing up, this was the the story that we had about Indigenous peoples in Canada is a very different story than we are learning about today. And so that has moved into the Overton window as a, a piece of political discourse that is, you know, widely accepted as important on the in in public discourse in public policy the danger with the overton or you know the dangers that we're seeing is when they move when that window moves into extremes and when more and more extreme ideas become acceptable in that overton window uh that can have long-term impacts on policy and decision making in a political context and so um, you know, obviously we've seen a pretty major shift in, in the window in the United States in the last several years. Um, 
And we are seeing some of that here. Um, one of the arguments that was being made was that the People's Party of Canada wasn't really, it wasn't the intention to get people elected so much as to get certain topics into national political discourse that haven't been there in the past or haven't been accepted in the way that they're being presented, right? So I, I worry about where our Overton window might be or might be moving at the same time, um, we're also talking about things like universal basic income, right? We're talking about recognizing how automation and artificial intelligence are going to reshape the working world as we know it. Um, it's already starting to happen. Uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. We're talking, so there's, there's, it's, it's opening on all sorts of fronts. I think it's so essential that we hold ourselves and each other um, to a place of, of remembering, you know, I'm the daughter of an immigrant. Mm -hmm. And unless you're indigenous in Canada, you're the descendant of an immigrant. And so that is who we are. And we celebrated that in the, you know, remember the multicultural and the singing the songs in class and, and really celebrating that, that, that diversity is, is who we are as Canadians. That's what we embrace. That's what we are excited about. And I, I don't want us to, to let that go. I want us to recognize that just like ecological biodiversity makes a, an ecological system stronger and more resilient human diversity makes all of us stronger and more resilient. Absolutely. There's a gap that I'd like to fill a little bit here. We've talked about you as a 10-year-old, and now our listeners are, are hearing um, your well-thought-out um, policies and, 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 and passions. Um, but, but I'm guessing they're wondering, as, a, as am I, how you got from you know, being curious to now having this um, having this um, honorable position, um, I, I know that you were a teacher at one point, and so so I'm starting to put put the pieces together, and it seems to me that another message that came from perhaps your father was, um, we're not passengers in this life, we're here to make a difference, and and that was and and so perhaps that led you into teaching, which which is one of the most honorable professions. My dad was a teacher as well, and I saw the difference he made, um, and I'm wondering. Um, when the kernels begin to pop, perhaps of <laughs> <laughs> sure we'll go with that of uh, when you decided I can move into an area of politics because that's uh, that's obviously a huge decision. And maybe take us on that journey and um, and up into the night when it finally happened because I was watching that on TV and that was, that was extraordinary. I mean, it was that was I don't think a lot of people saw that coming. So. For um, yeah, there's a there's a lot there, but maybe you can fill that in a little bit. I'm gonna start when I was six years old. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> We're going back even further. Love yeah, it. Clear, I got Maeve laughing. Clear the afternoon. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's How much long, time have we got? It's a long form podcast. So it's perfect. Um, uh, just for for two very quick, but for me very um, illustrative uh, anecdotes. So one was my, I had a banana seat bicycle that I inherited from my sister, Julia. And I love that banana seat bicycle. 
and it had a little license on the back and it said Julia <laughs> and one day I came out to my backyard and my bicycle was gone and I was very upset very sad and it was the 70s so of course I'm walking around my neighborhood and about a week or two later I come across a group of boys maybe 12 13 years old and they've got my bicycle mm. and I just I just let them have it I was like that is not your bicycle. As you can see, it has a name on it. It says Julia. None of you are named Julia. I will be taking that bicycle back. And they all just like flabber and, and take your bike, kid. <laughs> it was a place of right and wrong that it, it, you know, it was beyond this is I love my bicycle. Yeah. It was it's wrong to take a kid's bicycle. Right. And I was going to let them know that. At, around the same time I was in the drugstore and I used to get you know a dollar and 25 cents would go towards a chocolate bar and 75 cents would go towards my favorite magazine which was um, Electric Company for graduates of Sesame Street (laughs) 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 and so I got my Electric Company magazine paid my 75 cents for it and got the change and then I wandered over to the chocolate bar section and I was really taking my time contemplating which chocolate bar and finally made my decision went and paid for my chocolate bar walked out of the store and a woman comes out and says I saw you steal that magazine and I was like I did (laughs) not I was so angry that she was accusing me of something that I had done wrong and I hadn't done anything wrong. And so the, the, these are to illustrate that even as a little kid, I was very imbued with this idea of right and wrong and, and, and how we should be in the world. Yeah. Uh, fast forward many, many years. I move up to Shawnigan Lake. Um, I had been teaching in Victoria and uh, a new school was opening in Shawnigan, or had opened a couple years previously, but they were getting a new principal, and I knew him through somebody else, and uh, he asked me to come for an interview, asked me if I spoke French, which really, I just want to say French up until this job may have been the reason I got almost every job I ever got in my mm. life, whether mm. I had to use it or not. And ultimately, I took a job there, and we moved up and lived on campus, and Soon after we moved in, started to notice these signs along the sides of the road with skulls and crossbones saying, no toxic dump in Shawnigan. And we were like, what the heck is going on? And so um, my husband, Blaze, got involved with the the Basin Society at the time, the Shawnigan Basin Society. And uh, I started watching. And a year later, the government issued a draft permit to allow for 5 million tons of contaminated soil to be put at the headwaters of the Shawnigan drinking watershed. And we were, it was back to that kid, that six-year-old kid saying, you can't do that. Government doesn't do that. You don't put dioxins and furans and hydrocarbons and lead and arsenic at the top of a drinking water source. Like, we couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And so it was Easter 2013 when that was issued. And uh, because we'd both had a lot of experience with advocacy, um, we'd been with a group called Results Canada and then with a microcredit organization called OikoCredit, um, we, we kind of, all of our community building advocacy skills were put to use and we started letter writing campaigns and media campaigns. And uh, a year later, I decided to run for CVRD director um, as we awaited what happened with this, and as everybody knows, um, 
ultimately, the permit went forward and, and the dumping of contaminated soil started in Shawnigan Lake. And uh, the community rallied um, and really came together. And ultimately, we built 13 teams and we had team leaders and we had weekly meetings with all the team leaders and then the teams would do all their work. And we became like this incredible community-based machine. And we got, you know, to the point we had a day with a helicopter and, and national media, every media organization. Uh, John Horgan, when he was leader of the opposition, came out in a helicopter and, and surveyed the site with the community. Um, we had W5 come and do a piece on it. Like we, we mobilized in this incredible way. And, and, uh, and then recognizing that this wasn't just a kind of a blip this decision, it was really a result of policy and legislation. And one of those policies was professional reliance, where instead of having government oversight of resource decisions and resource um, activities, uh, the industry would hire its own professionals who would then tell government, you know, everything's fine, nothing to see here kind of thing. And there's a lot of evidence and incidents where professional reliance went sideways. So Mount Polly is another example of this, right? And a lot in the forestry. And so I started to recognize that, okay, I want to, I want to see if I can change that. I want to see if I can go to the legislature and fix that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was really what motivated me to run for MLA. And after a Herculean six-month campaign, it got us to that election night, which yeah, yeah was surreal. Yeah, that was. Because... <laughs> You know, nobody really could believe that a Green could win in Cowichan. And they actually, because the first, for the, about the first 40%, 50% of the night, the polls were coming in, the NDP was in the lead, right? Yeah. And I was just behind, but every poll, I would just make a little more headway. And then suddenly it switched. Well, and I was watching with some friends. And, and like, this, this riding has been NDP for a long time, right? Historically, it's been very NDP. And, and we were all kind of watching it and seeing the green on there as like, almost like it was like an adorable little thing. Oh, look at the little greens. Isn't that cute? Oh, well, that's really cool. They're really making some headway. But that's kind of the way we're talking about it. And so as the night came on, I mean, it just got to be like, people were putting down their drinks and they were like, you know, sitting in their chairs and they were like, this could really happen. I mean, it was... It was a shocking thing. And then you tell the end of the story. Well, I mean, and so around midnight, um, they finally called the riding uh, as gone to the green as that I'd won. Mm -hmm. And um, the CBC broadcast from Victoria. So Gregor Craigie was doing the live broadcast and uh, he got uh, it got relayed to him that I would come down to Victoria and meet up with Adam and Andrew. And now that the three of us had learned that we'd all been elected and it was a pretty monumental night and it was a minority government and all these things. And the, the, so the strangest moment was driving over the Malahat and Gregor Craigie saying, uh, we just got reports that Sonia first now is driving over the Malahat. <laughs> <laughs> Life just changed yeah, a lot. Right. Um, right. And it did change a lot. I would, um, I would say I am, I am still me. I'm, I don't really intend to change a lot. <laughs> I'm still that six-year-old kid who's really incensed when people do things they shouldn't do. Um, Is that possible for a politician? Well, I'm going to try to prove that to be so 
it's really important and it's one of the reasons um to have this uh, amazing woman working with me um and other people who i deeply trust and my husband and and kids is to just keep me very real right like don't get caught up in all of this heady world of politics i'm just me and i will bring the best of me if i can stay rooted in what i truly believe and and what i care about but also stay curious uh recognize i can learn and this is one of the things i love about the job it's been like being back in university Hmm. is i get to learn all the time and constantly be able to reshape uh my thinking on a number of issues and and focus on how do we get to the best outcomes so i want to ask like three questions at the same time (laughs) which i'm going to try my best not to do um so I'm trying to decide which one to start with. He's trying. The the whole idea of of being a polymath and and having to have knowledge and understanding of all of these different really complicated issues which is is now your job, right? That's now your responsibility is to to have a a deep sense of awareness of of all these different things. And so I'm I'm just really interested in in how that took place obviously your curiosity is is an elemental skill and kind of a required ability but what has been the biggest challenge of that or or how has that experience been first of all that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said but i would never claim to be a polymath (laughs) (laughs) um in some ways the most challenging thing has been having to be um you know, having to have a basic understanding of so many things when my inclination is to go very deep on on topics that really matter. And so one of the, there's only three of us in the caucus. And so we've had to kind of divide up those, those files that we want to go more deeply on. Um, and that's one thing that I, I find really important is I, I don't want to just skim the surface on a bunch of things and and work from a place of talking points i actually want to feel a knowledge that i'm speaking from a place of of some knowledge and understanding um and so we have extraordinary staff at the legislature who are doing just uh, an incredible job of of bringing us information and pointing us in directions but also just it's the curiosity it's like oh there's another article on this topic or there's another thing that I can read and my biggest frustration is that I want to go deeper on Mm -hmm. topics and that there isn't the kind of time in a day or a week when my schedules are like it's just it's kind of a flat out schedule almost all the time and so it's just finding those opportunities to focus on specific topics and really get you know get to a place of understanding like I, I want to have the understanding. And there's always more to know, too, yeah. especially someone who's studied history. That's you can never know the full story. And there's always like driven by curiosity. There's, you know, you answer a question and you and mm-hmm. you come up with four new questions. And that as well, that sense of being a little girl and, and being so just so driven to be guided by right and wrong. A lot of those 
subjects, there isn't a clear right and wrong. It's complicated. There's a lot of nuances to it. So how has that played out where you really wanted to stand up for what was right when there's 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 a lot of gray yeah it and and that's absolutely a a reality right is that it particularly when you get to a decision-making world and we're not in government we're we're an opposition party with this relationship that we have with the the governing ndp um but every decision, of course, has a number of consequences, and some of them unintended and some of them unexpected. And so this is where, you know, I think we really focus on being evidence-based and looking at best practices and looking at what other jurisdictions have done and how they succeeded in solving these problems and identifying really, I, this is one thing about politics that I, I actually see a very significant shift in, which is from my childhood, election campaigns, it seems to me, used to be about an exciting vision for the future. It used to be about, let's look in, up on the horizon and see where we want to go and talk about that. And it's like we've shrunk on time scales and in terms of what we think we want to be achieving and it comes down to these very small you know you're going to get a tax credit for this one thing and there's been some interesting literature on this about the way that um, data-driven politics and and political parties that are driven by data will micro-target specific populations with Uh, you know, a carrot of some kind, a tax credit on on hockey equipment or whatever it is, in order to get the votes from these very tiny uh, constituencies, really, and that collectively that can deliver a mandate and a government. And that adds to us being divided, right? And so instead of this, the politics being this, let's imagine who we are collectively and where we want to go and and what kind of society we want to be we're talking about you know what are you going to get out of voting for me in the short term and this is i think a very sad reflection on where we're at that we don't we don't have that long vision anymore um and it means that politicians are more and more expected to speak in sound bites and stay in the message box and and don't go into the complexities of, of and the gray areas and the complications because we just want to deliver a very clear message and stick to that and and move forward right i'm just thinking one of the one of the biggest obstacles for someone in your position has to be especially for for yourself the strong sense of right and wrong and you have these personal preferences, but you're also elected. How do you find that balance? And how do you not stay frustrated? And how do you, how do you allow yourself to sort of give a bit here because of the big picture and, and just that whole, I don't know if it's a game or that whole struggle. How do you manage that? So this comes back in some ways for me to the, the conversation about the institution. That I am not, when I'm in the legislature, I'm not Sonia first now. I am MLA for Cowichan Valley. Right. So I am there representing the people who voted for me and the people who did not vote for me. Mm. I'm there representing my entire 
riding and all of the constituents and not all of them are going to be happy with the positions I take but I am at least going to be in a place of explaining why I'm taking those positions I'm not taking them because anyone's telling me to take them I'm taking them based on these principles and this evidence and these outcomes uh and so that's number one um and then it's again it's it's identifying you know part of how we've identified priorities for the for the constituency work and connected to the legislative work that I do is what are the things coming into our constituency office that are you know turning up as the biggest and most urgent needs so housing and homelessness uh, the apprehension of indigenous children uh, those are the top two right and then uh, mental health poverty the opioid crisis right there's there are these urgent needs and so that deeply informs uh you know what i feel my work is to to be which is to be in service to the people and to be looking for solutions to these very urgent needs do you think that factors in as well to that whole idea of the long-term vision versus like short-term either attempts to get reelected or just putting out fires because it seems like we're we're in a world where everything is urgent and we lose sight of what's important does that affect that whole long-term vision and the, and the plan for the future and and how does that come into play in in, in your political spheres mm-hmm. So I think that, that much of why we're seeing so much urgency right now in specific needs, and particularly around the things I just listed, the housing and the opioid crisis and the poverty, is that um, as we stepped away from that, those longer-term approaches to politics and that longer-term vision and the longer-term governance decisions and went for the short-term, you know, uh, approach. How does this benefit you right now? What am I? What am I giving to you right now? Um, that there has been a deep erosion of the structures and the systems that were to ensure that that we could stay on that longer term path of a uh, an equitable society. Of um, you know, the lack of inequality should be of a fundamental driving principle because we know. And again, you look at research on this we know that inequality doesn't just make things worse for the people at the poorer end of the inequality scale it actually makes things worse for everybody right and so we should have always been striving to maintain um you know a a always striving to to recognize that we don't want inequality to ever get to a point where it's gotten to now right this is one of the the biggest problems that we have and not just here but i think i would say globally um because inequality leads to these these foundational problems that that tend to emerge and so when those services were cut at the beginning of the 2000s it didn't emerge right away the impacts of that when we cut funding to education, when we cut funding to mental health, when we cut funding to victim services and, and social services, all of that, all of the, the, the outcomes from that only emerged 10, 15 years down the line. And now we're in the crisis from those decisions that were made then. And those were short-term decisions. We can, 
you know, balance the books or we can reduce the deficit. And yes, we want to be fiscally responsible, but it's not fiscally responsible now to have the kind of crises that we're in where uh, we have to operate in an emergency mode on so many things. So it's what are our fundamental driving forces, right? And and who do we want to be? And, and why do we want to be there? Because research tells us that societies with less inequality do better overall, right? Societies that invest deeply in education have better overall outcomes. Uh, societies that invest in public health. And so let's look at how the, the kind of positive outcomes we want to get, recognize that there's lots of examples of policy that will get us there and move forward with that as opposed to we're just going to do the short-term thing that you know gets us reelected next time yeah and as you're saying that it it is full of reason and practicality and and still my mind goes to the conversation we were having earlier about fake news and shouting your opinion that has nothing to do with the research that has been shown what investing in education and equality and the fact that that has so um it it is a, a great challenge of our time and yeah one that we're not going to solve um in this conversation but it's it's such an important conversation to to have um, one, you, you use the word crisis, and uh, one topic that I wanted to get into with you um, was the crisis of the environment that, that we're in now. And as a member of the Green Party, um, obviously that's a, a huge part of your platform and your belief system, uh, as a party at least. And I wonder yeah, how, how that relates to your personal values and the, the importance of of the future of the environment um, for you personally and, and how that plays into your role? So, the, uh, again, just a tiny question. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I wonder if we can even start with di- differentiating between global warming and climate change. Yeah. The reason why I say that is because I hear so many people who say just ignorant things and it's obvious they don't know the difference between global warming and climate change i know they're connected but there's a tangible difference right people say things you know the weather one day it's a little bit colder than normal oh global warming eh? (laughs) you know and it's just kind of ignorant and they just like it's like i you know it gets me angry but uh but there but there's a big difference and so perhaps we can just um clear up Mm -hmm. what are some of the notable differences and then you can kind of continue to ask or answering andrew's question sorry andrew (laughs) well and i would say for me the short answer on that is is we are going to increasingly see climate disruption so that the system of the climate system that has provided the earth with a pretty stable climate for quite a long time now is being disrupted so we can we're going to see those disruptions with increasing frequency here's the thing i i have a there's a philosopher that i really admire his name is charles eisenstein uh he lives in california he's got he's all over the internet you can find him um i got i had the the great privilege to see him speak in person and then also to to drive him uh 
he had to get back down to uh, the airport and I got to drive him from Shawnigan to the airport. It was, it was mm. maybe the yeah. most exciting hour of me driving <laughs> a philosopher anywhere in my whole life. Um, and I've admired him for a long time. He, uh, he talks about how if we keep talking about emissions and targets and, and we frame this in, in these, these kind of numerical ways, uh, well, he points out, we've been doing this for 30 years, really. We've identified 30 years ago uh, that this is a serious uh, crisis and that the increased emissions of, of CO2 are going to further exacerbate this problem and our emissions have steadily risen globally, right? So identifying that the emissions are the root of climate change has not enabled us to make different kinds of decisions. Yeah. And what Charles uh, speaks about is when we, when we consider the biosphere, when we consider the planet and everything that's living on the planet and the planet itself as a kind of a living thing, um, and we, we recognize that we are motivated by love for something on this planet, we, we might do better at making decisions. And so I'm going to, a couple weeks ago, we went up to Port Hardy with a family, end of summer, kind of, okay, one last weekend away. And we happened to go to Malcolm Island, which is where Sontula is. And we happened to go to a beach called Bear Point on Malcolm Island. And on this beach, uh, sometimes orcas will come up and the rocks are a particular shape and the orca will They'll, they'll rub on these rocks. And it's not that common of an occurrence, but we happened to be there and we sat there for about an hour and then a pod of orcas mm -hmm. came up and it was this extraordinary experience. I mean, they were where that desk is. They were 10 feet away, like right up on the beach and, and turning over and rubbing their backs on there and, and, and making noises to each other and blowing up their air holes and... And there were about 40 or 50 of us on the beach and none of us moved a muscle. I mean, we just couldn't move. It was just so amazing to see this unfolding. And I've given speeches in the house about the, the danger that, that our southern and northern residents orcas are in um, and that the, the loss of an orca, the loss of a species is a loss to me. And... I feel that even more deeply now, having seen this up close, this experience of seeing them be who they are uh, in their habitat. And it, it further reinforces my desire to, to be part of a change, to be part of something that, that will move us forward to recognize that if we're just, it's life on earth. It's, it's this miraculous thing that's happened on this rock that's shooting through space, orbiting around this star, that there is this extraordinary diversity of life and we're losing it. And it's going to, you know, we're losing it at a rate that we can't even really understand. Um, and as that life is lost, so too does it render our life a bit less. Right? And that my children and their children, ideally, would be able to experience the richness that we've all grown up with, but is fast disappearing. 
Yeah, and, and we're not separate from that experience of the orcas rubbing themselves on the rocks. We're we're just as much a part of the natural world as they are. Mm-hmm. Only we consider ourselves separate, and and often we live in a bubble and and alienate ourselves from from nature and from the earth and and maybe we do that because we know how somewhere unconsciously we know how much of a detriment we are to the planet in in a lot of the actions we take i'm i believe that there's a government responsibility to to take action Mm -hmm. uh just as i believe there's a corporate responsibility to take action and a personal responsibility and what i i can't stand seeing apathy from any of those but especially personal responsibility and i'm wondering how and and by apathy i mean the the memes on social media or just people saying you know the world's going to shit mm-hmm. and and you know it's happening so well there's nothing i can do about it um how can we combat that attitude Here's my Elizabeth Warren moment. I have a plan for that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think she's terrific, by the way. I think we can trace so much of of where we're we're not aligned with what we might want to be aligned with in, and and Eisenstein talks about this too, and it's what you're talking about. It's connection. So connection to the orcas, connection to the trees, but also connection to each other. And... I think that we have, and um, uh, Bill McKibben's latest book, Falter, really goes into how did we come to believe this story of of individualism as the height of the human existence or experience? Mm-hmm. This idea that we are separate, that 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 you strive for your own individual success by whatever means possible. And he traces this to the writings of Anne Rand and the kind of, uh, the way that, that that kind of thinking has infiltrated so much of political thinking in the last several decades, certainly since the 1980s. And I think at some, we are recognizing a lot of us that um, connection to other people and connection to the world and, and nature is actually what we need deeply. And so one of the things that I think we can work on, and I see it happening all over in communities that I visit all over BC, is this notion of like recreating that neighborhood connection that, you know, we all probably remember from from our childhood as being the normal thing. And then we went through this whole phase of like, ooh, it's scary outside and children should be kept inside because bad things happen to you when you're outside and, and there's bad people out there. So better to be in front of a TV screen or a computer screen than to be out in the scary outside world. And we're we're moving away, I think, I'm seeing. And I'm seeing things like communities organizing block parties and shutting down their street and, and having a neighborhood party and and neighbors really working on getting to know each other and local governments starting to recognize that this is part of um, how we build more resiliency and how we do emergency preparedness and 
And I, I, you know, I think we can take that to an even more structured approach to this where we have neighborhood captains and, and we can actually not only forge connections between us within our, our neighborhoods, but we can look at that as recognizing that there's all these um, untapped assets in a way, you know, and, and that can be everything from do we really need 30 lawnmowers on one block to we can start organizing car sharing without using a, a, a company like Uber if we actually know who in our neighborhood is going where and, and how do we coordinate that um, to if I have gardening skills um, and my neighbor down the street wants to learn, I'm happy to have her come over and spend time and maybe she can teach me something about you know knitting or right so that we have this not just physical assets but human skills and assets and and we can create a, a connectivity that we're going to need as we see more and more of the climate disruptions as we recognize that there are going to be more power outages and more big storms and more times when we are going to be needing our neighbors so it's best that we know their names ahead of that time but also who has what skills that we're going to need and who has the generator and who has the wood stove and, and all of that kind of stuff. And in that, we start to reject this notion that I'm just a solitary individual in my own orbit and nothing else matters, right? That I'm, I'm disconnected. We're, at, we're all connected. And I think that this is, connection is really the antidote to... Um, to a lot of the challenges that we're seeing. It's pretty hard to look somebody in the eye and say the kind of things that people will say from the safety and security of their computer keyboard in and staring at a screen. And if we can remember that when we, when we say things, we actually have an impact on other human beings that we don't really want to have that impact. Um, and connectivity is what's going to help us move away from that and i am completely behind your solution and that whole idea of community and even the lawnmower sharing and sounds i mean i have a solution for the lawnmower thing well like, we'll just take all those contracts <laughs> yeah John, John, do it. I mean, well, why have ten different companies when you could just have Lush Eco Loans and Gardens dot com? Is that a shameless plug? Is this is this is this yeah. sponsored by Lush Eco Loans? It should be. Yeah, and, I, and for I the Eco Loans, is what I <laughs> Lush Eco Loans. And, and for the record, we do try and convince people to get rid of their lawns often because um, a lot of it is pointless. Anyways, that wasn't your main point. Um, we take your point about connection. Um, and we even talked about on our last episode, which just came out, um, about the loss of connection between um, humans and nature and, and, and that the, the repercussions of that. Yeah, and going back to our roots, that whole idea of, of the strengths of a community by each person playing a role and, and actually having a relationship with one another. I mean, it could sound a little bizarre to somebody who just has only lived in our current time but that's exactly how communities were built yeah. that's that is civilization like that is human sure. society that that's how we were built and we've gotten away from that and well yeah, and if you travel you'll see that's how a lot of communities still are mm -hmm. all over the place and that's why we love to travel to those places yeah because we're like oh there's such community here yeah i think that isolation is is one of the biggest dangers and, and threats to our um mm -hmm. our future so my son who's 13 now when he was three 
uh, was sitting out on our front porch in Fairfield and uh, I was inside and all of a sudden he comes in and he's trailed by a man playing a ukulele (laughs) and uh, this was Ken. Ken became our friend, but he had walked by playing his ukulele and Peter said, hi, (laughs) and they became friends and then we became friends. Um, And now currently Peter uh, does yard work for a couple of our elderly neighbors in our little neighborhood. And I was out on a run the other morning and one of the women he works for, who I've never met before, um, I introduced myself and and we had a 25 minute conversation um, because he has gone out and made this connection and now that connection. And it's like to me, this is what makes life good. Mm-hmm. is that feeling of I am connected with these people around me. I care about them. I know they care about me. And uh, it's it makes life so much richer and so much more wonderful. Yeah, and, and, and you say connection, and I think people might think you're talking about social media, but, but I think we all know, and you, you're shaking your head um, violently right now, <laughs> um, and for good reason, because because it's the great false connection right it's the counterfeit it's, it's we think we're connecting but but when we log off we feel worse about ourselves and often more disconnected because it's so surfacey and superficial and um but it's also where civilization is going so we know it's needed but it's i mean you're on social media you know you have lots of twitter followers you you're you probably have a facebook page which we'll put in the show notes like so it is important and maybe a necessary evil but it's not true connection, right? I, I look at social media very much as a form of communication. So communicating out what what work I'm doing, what I'm involved in, what issues really matter. Um, but increasingly, and this is something we talked about uh, when you guys, when we chatted last week, and there's an article out yesterday in the TAI about this, is that um, women in positions of leadership, particularly related to, to climate or environment, are being subject to a like just an, uh, a very disturbing level of misogyny and violence on social media. So Catherine McKenna now has to have a security detail because that has translated into real world. But, you know, one of the things the article points out, and this is very, for me, very accurate, which is people will say, oh, well, it's just words. What, what does that matter? No, because as women, we grow up as girls and, and then as women to be aware that violence is a very real thing it happens in our lives it's you know i don't think any woman is going to be able to say i got through my whole childhood and my whole adolescence and my adult life without violence right Mm -hmm. or any person but we we one story i was in denmark in copenhagen with a friend and we went and saw matrix 2 which I didn't like the first time I saw it, but I really liked when I watched the whole trilogy together. It made more okay. sense. Really? I well, recommend there's, it. There's a part four coming out. Did you hear that? I heard that. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we came out of the movie theater. It was about 1230 or 1 in the morning, and it was high summer, so it's still a little. It's, you know, it's Scandinavia. It's great. Kind of light out still. But I, I do the thing that we're all kind of trained to do as women, um, and just that kind of peripheral check periodically, and be aware of your surroundings and what's going on. And he finally says, what, what are you, what is this? And I said, well, I'm just, this is, it's, it's just what we do. And he, he, it was really confounding for him because there isn't 
you know, of course, Denmark has its own problems, but there isn't that level of violence against women. And so violence against women on social media is violence against women. And it is becoming a very serious problem. And it, it, you know, it makes it a very hard space for me to be in. I'm, I'm so happy to be in my community or in any community around the province. I'm, I'm find that incredibly wonderful and comforting to connect with people all over. I do not find social media to be a particularly safe space anymore. And in the, in the article that we talked about, it gave one of the um, one of the primary motivators behind the those actions that people have been taking against environmental activists and, and women in particular um, is motivated by fear. And I think if we got down to the base level of what's um, what's creating a lot of that hate rhetoric and and violent action and violent words is is fears. So how might, what, what might the antidote to that, that fear be? And because as John mentioned, social media is not going away anytime soon, unfortunately, but it, yeah. It, how can we get beyond those fears and make it a safer place? I'm, I'm going to come back to connection. I'm going to come back to, you know, uh, if you get a chance, the, there's a talk that Charles Eisenstein gives called um, The More Beautiful World Our Heart Knows Is Possible. And it's been put to a video, it's been put to two videos. The original video has always really resonated with me. And it's there's a scene in it in which there's, obviously, there's a crowd of people and there's a discord happening. And there's two men in the middle of the crowd. And one is an African-American and one is a man in a business suit. And it's edited in such a way that, you know, in the first scene, they're they're clearly in an adversarial place. And in the second scene, the hands have come down. And then in the third one, the hands reach out and they clasp hands. And then the african-american man puts his arm and then they go into an embrace and i think that if we were to to be willing to listen and to be willing to connect with people who maybe don't agree with us on everything and and to be able to look for the things that we can agree on and start from that place um we'll do better but for some you know, however social media has emerged and has uh, sort of evolved, it has not encouraged that, and particularly because you're not connecting really with the person that you're engaging with. Often you don't know their names, you don't know where they are, you don't know anything about them. And so I would say go out into community, go to events with people that you think you don't agree on and listen and have civil conversations and come back to that place of like when I had to give a talk on on climate change at a conference recently and it was MLAs from all over the country so Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario right and I knew I was going into that room as a as a green MLA talking about climate change and talking about carbon pricing that there were a whole bunch of 
uh, probably assumptions that had been made about me before I even mm-hmm. walked up to the microphone. And so what I did was I started by asking everybody in the crowd to just don't think about anything other than what, it, what matters most to you in your life and write it down. What's the first thing that comes to mind? What do you value the most? What do you care about the most? And then I went around the room and of course... The answers were pretty similar. My family, my children, um, my the environment, clean water, right? Time in nature, and so I got us to a place of agreement as a starting point. Okay, we can all agree that these are the things that matter most. So then, how do we move forward in this role that we're in to make decisions collectively that put those? things that we value the very most at the center of our decision making and so we were able to have a pretty productive discussion Mm. and rather than um you know where we typically end up which is we're gonna we're gonna be finding the things that we disagree on and we're gonna start there and we're gonna double down right Mm -hmm. so Maeve the timekeeper unofficial has told us that we got about nine minutes left, and I don't believe we've really um, dug dug deep enough on obstacles. Mm. And uh, that is our podcast. And so I thought we could perhaps end with with you sharing a little bit about some of your your um, current obstacles you mm-hmm. face, um, both as you know Sonia the person and also Sonia the MLA. Um, and, and, and your position in, in separating those, uh, what what do you face, um, and and what what currently are you trying to push forward? And Andrew wants to add to that. Yeah, and I love it. And if I can add, <laughs> we've got eight and a half minutes still, so we can get to this. Yep. But the obstacle of engaging people in the political process. Yeah. Um. I would say, for me, uh, uh, one of the obstacles that I've really been wrestling with, particularly the last, well, since I've been elected as an MLA, is this public-private uh, kind of line, right? Yeah. yeah. I I recognize that, on the one hand, I'm a public servant and a public figure, but I also feel deeply protective and it, it's not to go against all the things I'm talking about with connection and it's not an individualistic thing, but I also have a kind of protectiveness of family and family life and that's really important to me and community life. And so f- wrestling with the demands that naturally come with this role mm-hmm. and how to draw those lines, those that's... And then, uh, you know, I'm actually quite shy... <laughs> <laughs> so people won't you know they'll be like oh you can't be shy but i get quite anxious going into mm. a room full of people and not so much if i'm doing a public speech i i'm i'm actually okay but if i'm entering into a room i feel anxiety about okay how do i how mm. do i do this right i'm and that's just a lifelong thing like i'm much more comfortable in a small group or a very large group, but the medium-sized groups really. Have you um, read that book, Quiet? I'm sure you have. No. Oh, okay. oh, put it on the list. Oh man, yeah, it's huge. It's yeah, exactly what you're talking okay. about. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, the wrestling with, um, and Maeve and I talk a lot about 
the, the work, capital W, work, the things that we feel passionate and want to work on and recognize, you know, it's so great to have Maeve that we are so inspired and aligned on the things that really matter to us and passionate. Um, and the questions around, is this the best avenue for achieving that work? And then questions around, does, you know, the political realm and the political culture is very, it remains very male-oriented. We're still a, a, a minority of women elected. Um, and so that culture is not one that, it, I mean, I would say I've experienced more sexism in the last two years than I have in my whole life. Mm. Uh, and that has been challenging, and that has been something that, you know, how much do I want to be in that world? Um and yet recognizing at the same time that if I, if I don't lean in, then does it change, right? Does it only change if, if people who don't want to be there that much stay long enough to, to affect a change? And I, I'd say that the minority government, the, the cooperation between parties has already affected the culture positively in the legislature. I'd like to see it move a lot further, I think. I don't understand why we can't move beyond an adversarial kind of governing style. And and if everybody put the best ideas on the table, we'd probably come up with better policy. So um, those are some of the obstacles I wrestle with. And did, did you see those coming maybe two years ago when you won? Were you like, okay, this is probably going to start to happen more? Or was it a bit like... We won, and then all of a sudden, like, okay, now it's gonna get re- gonna get real. I I tend when I make a decision about something, I tend to go kind of all in, and right. so I was, you know, ultimately running with the intention of of hopefully winning. Yeah, yeah. and I'm really grateful I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you can't imagine it until you're there, because mm. again, we haven't had a minority government in BC since the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And so there was no playbook. There was no like, here's a handbook of how to be the third party with balance of power in a minority government. Go. <laughs> Instead, it was like this onslaught of everybody is going to have an opinion on this and every misstep is going to be very public and, and it, it, you know, measuring uh, every word. And th- it, these are, these are uh, challenges, obstacles. The most important thing being that I, as I said at the beginning, I I want to remain me fully in this. I, And I have a sleep test on that. If there's something that is keeping me awake at night, then I have to fix it. Mm-hmm. If I've said or done something that comes back in the night and niggles at me or wears at me, I have to go fix it. And that's been a really good way of, of keeping things. If I'm sleeping well, then... I feel like I'm in a place of integrity, um, and if I'm not, then I have to fix. That's whatever a great it is. test, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I think we have to pretty well wrap up here, which is sad. Um, I feel like we could go for for the whole afternoon, but yeah, thanks I, a lot, Maeve. I, I guess Maeve didn't clear the schedule, <laughs> so yeah, I I am still curious about how we can bring more people out to participate in the upcoming election and if if there's any parting words 
on that, um, mm-hmm. you're, you're welcome to share, and, and then we'll uh, we'll get out of here. One more question after that. <laughs> okay. On the on the election, this is your future. Whether you're 75 or 25 or 15 or five, um, what happens in elections? The outcomes of elections have a very profound impact on your future and so think about the future you would be excited about and determine which party and the uh, CBC has the I think they still have it you do a series of questions and it aligns you it tells you which party aligns with your values right, yeah. um, find read the platforms don't don't rely on the noise on social media or in the media Read the platforms. That's where the parties identify what they stand for, what they will do, and and how they intend to get there. And then be involved. A democracy only works through participation of the citizens and not democracy. The opposite of democracy is the most terrifying uh, thing that I can imagine. And, And I think we have to recognize how precious it is and it's it requires everybody to participate in it Mm -hmm. i want to go back to where we began with your father Mm -hmm. uh is he is he still with us okay so um when when did he pass so he died october 16th 2001 okay one week before his 62nd birthday Mm -hmm. um he died of uh multiple myeloma which is a blood cancer mm-hmm. and uh he died way too soon and mm-hmm. uh we named our son after him peter oh. and mm-hmm. he very much lives in us and in our stories and and even my kids can tell grandpa peter's stories mm-hmm. um i'm fortunate my mom is still with me and she's a great part of our lives and, and a great part of the kids lives and she's also phenomenal community activist and and organizer um but yeah he's i you know i'm i he always told me from as young as i could remember that i could achieve or accomplish anything i wanted i had to put my mind to it and i had to be willing to work hard and that resonates in me to this day I'm willing to work hard for things that I I want to achieve and accomplish. Um, And I find a real joy in work. And uh, I'm so grateful that I had a father who uh, made it such a priority to tell me as a girl growing up that there were no limitations. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I wonder what, what he would have said to you on your election night when you won. What do you think he would have said? He, I think he would have been incredibly proud and also anxious about the implications of it all, about being a public figure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he, he taught me very well to be aware of, of the realities of that and, and to be mindful of, uh, of uh, in all ways, public figure or not, but to be mindful of my words and actions. Well, thanks so much for bringing all of yourself and and for bringing his legacy into the room today. And it was uh, such an an absolute pleasure. And and 
yeah, there was 30 questions that went unasked and um, we, we were really appreciative that, that you made the time and space in, in your very busy schedule to, uh, to be here today and, and to share everything that you have. Well, thank you both. And, uh, you know, from your first podcast where I learned all about Maeve being the point guard, I would say <laughs> she remains the point guard. She is the person who can see the game from above and knows which move and who to pass the ball to, to this day. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs a Maeve. That's what you said on the phone. <laughs> oh, Peter, 13-year-old Peter says all the time, uh, you couldn't do this job without Maeve. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs a Maeve, and I'm the luckiest to have Maeve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thanks to you both. Yes, thank you so much for dropping by. This was, was a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Well, that's the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We appreciate your time and attention. If we can make one request, please subscribe. How do you do that, John? They push subscribe. That's all you got to do. We also got social media, guys. We got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We also got a really fancy website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on. Mm -hmm, For sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening. Keep pushing through those obstacles.